Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning, Church of the Advent. My name is James Steinbach. Oh, yeah. You can say good morning, too. Thank you, Jordan. I didn't slow down there. Um, yeah, my family and I normally go to the first service. This is like meeting a whole new congregation almost. Um, delighted to meet you, and we're going to be looking today at Isaiah chapter 2. And before we get into the details of the text and the meaning it carries for us still today, I want to introduce a couple things. Uh, one is Advent season. As Cindy already reminded us, this is our Happy New Year's at church. This is the first week of the church's cyclical calendar. Every year we repeat the same patterns that focus our minds in the same ways to expect the Lord's return. And as we celebrate Advent, you probably notice several changes around the building. As we tell the kids downstairs, purple is a serious royal color. We're waiting for the return of the king. There's a lot of purple in the building. You've probably noticed a lot more candles as well, and we've already seen the first candle on our Advent wreath lit. Every week we'll add another candle lit to the wreath, and as we increase the light on the wreath, it's like our hearts are reminding ourselves to increase our expectation, our longing, our Advent practice. And I want to suggest that we train our hearts with the practice of Advent at three levels. The first, and maybe the simplest, is the present, right? We, we poke open a little cardboard door, eat a tiny piece of cheap chocolate, and wait until we get to open gifts on Christmas morning. Uh, kids love that part. I wish they were in the room to hear that, but... Um, my kids poke little cardboard holes in, in a Lego box and get to build a little Lego figure every, every day for Advent. They enjoy that. We, we count down the days in the present to this year's Christmas celebration. But that, that helps us enter into a past level of Advent observance as well. Uh, specifically, we remember with God's people for millennia the expectations that have been felt. We, we're looking at Isaiah through this year's Advent sermons, and we think... Uh, 2,700 years ago, the longings the people of Israel felt right up until Jesus arrived. And we, we enter into the past and we relive and re-practice, reenact the longing, the yearning of God's people for millennia. And then the third layer is our future focus. As we practice that longing, we train our hearts to long for Jesus to return. We embody expectation, not just because Christmas is a fun holiday or because God's people did it a long time ago, but because we need this practice right now. We are people who yearn, who long, who anticipate and expect the coming of our long-expected Jesus. We have, to, we have to expect for a few reasons. First, because the world's not the way it should be, right? The world's broken. Things go wrong. We also expect because we can't solve the problem ourselves. We can't make the world right again. Our politicians can't. Our billionaires certainly can't. We're not fixing the world. We need someone else to. So we expect, we long, we wait. And then third, we practice longing by focusing our vision on our one true hope. During Advent, we can actively practice. We can work to get better at anticipating the return of the king. So that's introducing Advent season. Now to introduce Isaiah a little bit. Well, we're probably used to gospel lessons being the sermon text for the last several months. We're going to move and use Isaiah instead during this Advent season, and we're going to have sermons from chapter 2, chapter 11, chapter 35, and then to keep us on our toes, back chapter 7. Isaiah's prophecies give us a really engaging, and I think a very helpful foundation for hope and for expectation. 
let's briefly introduce the history behind Isaiah. He's preaching these messages to Judah. You heard the reference to that in Isaiah 2.1 as it was read earlier today. This is God's word concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The kingdom has been split for years. It's split shortly after Solomon's death. The northern kingdom has already been taken by Assyria. And now Assyria is kind of becoming has-beens on the global playing field. And the hot new superpower is Babylon. And here they come. So Assyria grabs its vassal state Israel and a few others and starts to form an alliance. Maybe we can resist Babylon and hold on to the last vestiges of our power. And they invite Judah to join the party too. And King Ahaz of Judah, for obvious reasons, the huge military strength and violence of Babylon says, yeah, strength in numbers, I'm leaning toward yes. And the Lord sends Isaiah with a sermon, a series of sermons, and his answer is no. You can't trust in military alliances. You can't trust in the political superpowers around you. You have to trust me alone. God says, I am your only hope, not your military, human, governmental alliances and crutches. It's not too much of a stretch at all for us to find similarities, even to empathize with Ahaz, Isaiah, and the people of Judah, right? We too live in a world oft driven by fear, stricken by war, a world where competing geopolitical forces or political factions constantly vie for our allegiance. We felt bombarded by ever-escalating warnings of dangerous political takeovers and maneuvers. That's the culture we swim in right now. That current of fear pulls at us, tempting us to put our trust in human institutions and alliances and not in God. So in each of these Isaiah Advent sermons, we're going to see varied facets of one big truth. No matter what fresh danger threatens our security, we keep returning to our one true hope, and that's Jesus, our King. So now, the specifics of today's text, Isaiah 2. We're going to see the kingdom of the Prince of Peace today in three ways. First, by focusing on Isaiah's words to Judah. Second, by jumping 700 years into the future from Isaiah's perspective and looking at the, the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. And then third, by looking an unknown number of years into the future and expecting the return of the king. And as we do that, we're going to connect a whole bunch of threads. We're going to weave together one unified tapestry, every section coming together to tell us one story, to show us that we have one hope, the single kingdom of God longed for by all God's people in all times. So, first, let's describe this kingdom the way Isaiah does. And Isaiah gives us three descriptions of the kingdom. First, it's an exalted kingdom. Look at verse 2. God's kingdom is the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's a pretty tall thing, right? Not only is it a mountain, it will be established as the highest of the mountains, verse 2 says. That's a pretty majestic, pretty exalted kingdom. And the, the focus here is on Yahweh's house, the house of the Lord. Not the house of Judah, not the house of Israel. This isn't a kingdom that just belongs to one people group at one place or one time in history. This is the kingdom of the Lord. Isaiah's pointing the people of Judah way past their own circumstances up to God. This nation belongs to the Lord. This kingdom belongs to the Prince of Peace. We might place ourselves back in Isaiah's day and think about what it meant for a people group to identify themselves with the deity. Back then, all the nations and tribes and little kingdoms around God's people had their deities. They had their favorite, often geographically specific, gods to look to, and whenever they came into conflict, every battlefield was a contest of the gods. Whoever's god's the best, that's the one that wins the battle uh, for his or her people. We might 
be tempted to look down condescendingly on the ancient folks and be like, ha, 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 we're so much better now. We've progressed beyond Baal and Ashtaroth, beyond gods like Marduk and Nebu or Ra and Osiris. But in reality, we've just gotten a little fancier and a little more abstract. We still live in a world of competing deities, only today their names are money and fame and prestige and pleasure and power and politics and entertainment and escape and consumption and so many more. We still live in a world where every conflict is a conflict of gods competing for the loyalty of the people around them. Isaiah's word strikes home in our hearts just like it did nearly 3,000 years ago when he first preached this message. God's kingdom is established, though, on the highest mountain. All of those competing voices, all of those other idols that want our allegiance, that vie for our attention, none of them are the highest mountain. God's kingdom is the exalted one. It's not just exalted, it's also irresistible. I love what happens when Yahweh's lofty kingdom is established. Verse 2 says, all the nations shall stream to it. Now, normally, streams flow downhill, at least all the ones I've seen. But these people, the nations, are streaming up to the top of the highest mountain. This kingdom has such a draw, such a pull, that it's like it reverses the laws of gravity and fluid dynamics. This stream of all nations flows uphill, and it comes with an invitation. It's not just a cool phenomenon to observe, like, hey, cool, uphill stream, that's fun. Let's watch and be impressed. No, it comes with an invitation to participate. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, verse 3. God's irresistible kingdom is an invitation to join a walk, a hike, a pilgrimage to participate in. It's a life-changing journey. Flowing uphill into God's kingdom is what the invitation says, being taught his ways and walking in his paths. This is a journey that inevitably changes the people who take it. It will change who we are. And I find comfort in this mystery between divine pull and human participation. Uh, Perhaps like me, at times, you've felt a sense of stress and anxiety and guilt in your Christian walk wrestling with feeling not good enough or not holy enough, not Christian enough, not changing fast enough. We struggle sometimes with with that pressure when we're trying to to change in our own strength to our own standards under our own power. But we don't have to do that. While we're certainly active participants, we don't passively sit by while transformation happens at us. We don't labor under guilt either, stress or anxiety about changing ourselves in our own strength. This transformation, this pull uphill is God's work in us. And as Paul said, the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We trim the sails, but the wind that actually moves our boat is God's power. We are pulled uphill by an irresistible kingdom. It changes our lives. So it's exalted, it's irresistible, and it's also a bit upside down. There's some really interesting reversals as we continue reading Isaiah's uh, prophecy here. God's kingdom takes human kingdom norms and expectations and flips them on their head. Mortal kings inevitably protect themselves with military might. Deuteronomy 17.6 has a warning. Years before there was a king in Israel, Moses warned the people, look, getting a king is going to be a bad deal because one of the problems is he will multiply horses to himself. He's going to create a standing army. He's going to rely on military might and violent power to accomplish the aims of the kingdom. Moses warned about that long before David, Saul, or also, or even Solomon appeared. 
Then 1 Kings 10 uses that same phrase, multiplying horses to himself, to show us that even Solomon, Israel's wisest king, succumbed to this temptation to build military might as a method for accomplishing kingdom purposes. God's kingdom, though, by contrast, is built on peace, not violent victories. Look at the reversals down in verse 4. Swords will be turned into plowshares, spears converted into pruning hooks. These blades that, that severed human flesh, that ripped life from body, are repurposed into tools that divide the ground and prepare the way for new life, new growth, for contented labor and peaceful provision. What a reversal. I wonder if Isaiah had lived closer to our day, if he might have added to the list bayonets turned into trowels, shotguns made into shovels, missiles converted to mowers, UAVs turned into ATVs, tanks made into tractors, harriers made into harrowers, and fighter jets into the world's fastest crop dusters. I don't think my list has the same poetry that Isaiah's does, um, but I want us to think about what would that look like in our world? How would this promise hold true in our generation? That's not just something to look at and think about. We're also called into that reality with an invitation. Look at verse 5, right on the heels of swords beaten into plows and spears into shears. We find Isaiah calling the people, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He wants us to participate in that reversal of violent human kingdom norms. I think that the earlier descriptions, exalted kingdom and an irresistible kingdom, serve to elevate and really put on a platform this third and focal attribute. Nobody expects the highest kingdom ever, the tallest of the mountains, to be run in a meek, lowly, peace-driven way, but that's exactly how it works. What could be the thing that makes all nations defy gravity, defy natural laws to flow uphill to the Lord's mountain, but this counterintuitive kingdom driven by peace, not by violence? Isaiah has twisted the plot so beautifully here at the end to give us a vision of the kingdom of the Prince of Peace that can overshadow our past experiences and correct default expectations for human kingdoms. He shows us God's kingdom instead. So that's Isaiah. As we pivot and turn toward seeing Jesus fulfill these expectations, I want to call our attention back to the candles, to the Advent light here. Isaiah's final invitation is, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And we find Jesus introducing himself in John 8 as the light of the world. So we see light giving us a connective thread, a way to, to trace a line from Isaiah right into Jesus. And how does Jesus come in and inaugurate the kingdom? How does the light of the world appear in the human kingdoms around him? In continuity with Isaiah 2, we see that Jesus shows up with the upside-down nature of God's kingdom on full display. In Matthew 20, he has an opportunity to respond directly to how do earthly kingdoms handle themselves, and here's what he has to say. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we heard last week in Lisa's sermon on Luke 23, Jesus, as king, didn't come to meet people's default expectation for the power or the privilege or the place of a king. He came to upend, to subvert, to change those expectations by putting his kingdom on display instead. 
Jesus' kingdom is not about self-preservation, about military might, about escalating violence or human victory. He visibly proves that to the greatest degree possible by ignoring three separate calls to save himself, as we heard last week, and instead walking fully, willingly, and humbly to the cross to die. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom where the meek are blessed, where the last are first, where the greatest act like slaves, where the king willingly gives his life for his subjects. Since it's Advent season, I really want to jump into Mary's Magnificat right now, back in Luke chapter 1, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to recommend you read that little take-home work for the, for the week and see how Mary is jumping into the same vein as Isaiah and announcing the upcoming birth of Jesus the King with dramatic reversals to human fortunes and power structures. In this vein of countercultural, counterintuitive perspective on kingdoms, I'd like us to pause for a second and consider something difficult for a moment. Friends, I wonder, is it, is it possible for us to walk fully with Jesus, the light of the world, while maintaining normal, default, uncritical commitments to earthly power structures? Can we completely swear allegiance to both the Prince of Peace and to human authorities and kingdoms built on power, violence, and war? Can we serve two masters? I recognize this creates difficult tensions to navigate. I don't have one pat, simple answer here to how we should navigate very, very tricky waters of politics and power and government and participation in all that. But what I want to remind us is that Isaiah and Jesus are calling us to think these hard thoughts, to wrestle with hard priorities, to challenge hard loyalties, and at times to speak hard words, even in the face of power, not to uncritically accept everything that culturally we're pulled downstream with. Was it easy for Isaiah to challenge the concept of military might when Judah was pinched between two superpowers at war? Did Jesus' words about the tyrant rulers of the Gentiles endear him to Rome at all? No. The kingdom of the Prince of Peace is beautiful, and it is so beautiful that it will eventually draw all nations into its light. Right now, we live in a time of tension. Right now, we're caught in the current of normal human rule with a lot of defaults that are often problematic. But we are striving to defy that flow and move uphill to the kingdom on the mountain, to God's exalted kingdom. We're called to be people who quite literally turn the tide, the first fruits of fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy, while still waiting for it to be ultimately and completely fulfilled. Let's reach out to the metaphor of light again as we transition to our final section here, looking forward to the return of the king as we think about light, we've seen Isaiah call us to walk in the light of the Lord. We've seen Jesus announce the same kind of kingdom Isaiah prophesied as the light of the world. And we can wrap things up nicely in Revelation 21 by looking at John's vision of unique light. He sees at the end of his book a city that has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God is its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And so once again, with the help of light as an aid, I want us to turn our attention to the future. We find echoes of all three of Isaiah's descriptions here in Revelation 21. John is on a great high mountain, verse 10, when he watches New Jerusalem descend from the heavens. Isaiah saw a kingdom on the highest of the mountains. Exalted kingdom. In verse 24, John sees all nations walking by the light 
of this city, just as Isaiah saw all nations walking in the light of the Lord. And we also find the upside-down nature of God's kingdom of peace here. Verses 3 and 4 are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Isaiah called our attention to the house of the Lord. John hears a voice cry out, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. John seeing the end game of the reversals Isaiah was talking about. Only in a kingdom where Jesus has repurposed every weapon of war, where he has redeemed every tool of violence and bloodshed, only there can tears be wiped away forever. Only there can mourning and crying and pain be no more. Gone forever will be all our short-lived human attempts at national glory or power, conquest, subjugation, violent forms of victory. In their place, we find, like Isaiah foretold, tools of a new life, provision, contented labor, the prince of peace ruling. This is the vision that Isaiah cast, that Jesus embodies, and that John catches as well. One consistent thread woven through Scripture here. In the light of the Lord, the light of the world, and the light of the Lamb, we find the darkness of the world pierced. We see its shadows fleeing, providing us a glimpse of one kingdom, one beauty, one perfection, the peaceful reign of Jesus himself. As we practice patience during this Advent season, as we incrementally light candles at church and at home, may we increasingly walk in Christ's light. Thank you, Father, for your word, for what it shows us of your eternal reign. May the light of the Lord show us peace amidst our problems. May the light of the world reveal hope where we felt hostility. And may the light of the Lamb grant us comfort in the face of chaos. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.